Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Drive My Batmobile Edition. On today's show, we'll discuss The Batman, the box office busting new film from director Matt Reeves, in which Robert Pattinson roams around an even gloomier version of Gotham than we usually see. Then, Drive My Car, the meditative Oscar-nominated Japanese film from director Ryusuke Hamaguchi, starring Hidetoshi Nishijima and a very, very pretty red sob. Finally, long movie runtimes. Both of the films we're discussing this week pushed three hours in duration. We'll discuss the best and worst ways to make 180 plus minutes of movie and our relationships to super long cinema. Joining me today is Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, how you doing, Julia? And also joining us today in place of departed Steve, not not forever departed Steve, just departed once again this week, Steve, is Jamel Bowie, friend of the program and opinion columnist for The New York Times. Welcome back, Jamel. Thank you for having me. Always happy to be here. We are so excited to have you on. And uh, in honor of your deep film nerdery, we have gone full film today. So uh, film nerds, get ready. Shall we do a show? Let's do it. First up this week is The Batman, the latest iteration of The Caped Crusader. Robert Pattinson's Batman is, has, has become the custom brooding, stoic, and fighting villains in Gotham City, but he's also a bit younger than recent counterparts, just two years into his caped vigilante career, with a lank physique, floppy 90s hair, and eye black that gives him an emo air when he takes off his cowl. His nemesis this time around is Paul Dano's The Riddler, who's been killing prominent political figures around the city. And he also encounters Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman, Jeffrey Wright's James Gordon, and an unrecognizable Colin Farrell as The Penguin. Uh, I think the best audio clip for us to give you guys a sense of the film will be a clip from the trailer. Here you will hear Paul Dano's very spooky Riddler voice, uh, and then Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz as Batman and Catwoman. You came. I've been trying to reach you. Riddler's latest. It's all about the Waynes. If we don't stand up, no one will. You got a lot of cats. Never think about strays. The bat and the cat. It's got a nice ring. You new friend of yours? I'm not so sure. I'm just here to unmask the truth about this cesspool we call a city. You're part of this, too. How am I a part of this? Oh, you're really not as smart as I thought you were. Bruce Way. Jamal, you are our resident comic book expert today. So I'm going to start with you. Uh, I think we have now had five, six, you know, more than one hand's worth of Batmans on our screens uh, in my movie-going lifetime. Um, 
Can you please situate Robert Pattinson's new Batman in the Batman space and uh, tell us how he's different and what you thought of him? Sure. Um, so my favorite my favorite Batman uh, performance remains Michael Keaton, who kind of portrayed Batman Bruce Wayne as a very bored, rich guy who does not understand ordinary human behavior and is sort of desperate for that bat signal to go up every night because that's the only thing he knows how to do, really. And that's the thing that kind of gives him um, meaning in the world. Pattinson's Batman is not that, but he's not also he's not also uh, Christian Bale's kind of you know playing up the duality of Batman being this serious Avenger and Bruce Wayne being this billionaire playboy because Pattinson's Bruce Wayne is barely in the film and when he does show up isn't a billionaire playboy he is sort of this you know Howard Hughes kind of reclusive guy. Um, and so, for me, the Pattinson's approach to the character is is sort of a Batman and a Bruce Wayne who have yet to kind of really figure out who who they are, right? Like who Batman is, who Bruce Wayne is as a person, um, and that sort of struggle for self discovery is like part of the I think the narrative thrust of this film. Um, but it also makes Bat uh, Bat. I keep on wanting to say Pattinson, so I'm going to go with Pattinson. <laughs> Um, it also makes Battinson uh, something of a, a much more interior Batman than even even uh, Christian Bale's was. Yeah, I mean, he makes Christian Bale's brooding look, um, you know, positively uh, pool float surface level. Um, Dana, can you talk a little bit about Pattinson's performance and where we find him as an actor now? Uh, and, and then also a little bit about what you made of this film? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just start by saying, to my utter surprise, this movie won me over. I mean, I I basically trudged grimly into the theater thinking, I guess I have to talk about Batman again, because between feeling pretty burned out on comic book blockbusters in general, and also just having always found Batman to be a pretty boring myth and not a very interesting character, I was kind of won over by this movie. And I, it was largely because of Robert Pattinson and because of the choices, some of the things that Jamel was talking about, you know, to to make him younger, to make him, it's not an origin story. We don't have to watch his parents die again, but we see him at the beginning of his career and we see him almost as an adolescent. I mean, I guess he's supposed to be in his early 20s, but it really is a coming of age story. And uh, and Pattinson is, is really, really good in that role and brings shadings to the character that made me care about Bruce Wayne, Batman, and that transformation really for the first time ever, maybe. I mean, if I like the Nolan movies at all, it's because of, um, because of the direction and not because of that character or Christian Bale's performance. But when you, when you say this Batman is even more brooding than the last Batman, it almost starts to sound like it's a self-parody. And I was thinking of, of Will Arnett's voicing of the, the Batman in the Lego movies, including there's an entire <laughs> Lego movie about Batman, which is all about, you know, making fun of this this dark brooding edgelord kind of aesthetic that, that Batman inevitably seems to bring in his wake. But this movie has a different shading on it than just more. You know, we're going to layer it with more black. How much more black can it get? Which is something uh, almost mid-century. There's a, there's like a richness to the to the decor to the world building. I don't mean in a mythical way, but in the actual built world surrounding the Batman and the way Gotham is is envisioned. 
There's, for example, a sort of Edward Hopper-esque quality to the way the city looks sometimes. There's just a little bit more of a feeling of of history in this Batman than in the more glossy, slick surface of, of the Nolan movies. So that's that's a very uh, vibey kind of answer to the question. But, um, but I think Pattinson contributes to that with this performance that really is about an extremely damaged person. I mean, the Bruce Wayne that we see, he wears his mask around the house. <laughs> that was something that really struck me in this movie. Even when he's at home with nobody there but his butler, Alfred played by Andy Serkis in this version, he rarely takes off his bat mask. You know, so he seems to be somebody who's really hiding from the world and, and Pattinson plays that super well, I think. Right, and hiding from himself. I mean, it struck me, you know, I don't know how many uh, cinema fans have watched uh, The Batman and Drive My Car as a double three-hour double bill. But, um, you know, it's like two grief movies. Like, really, it's a grief movie and it takes seriously you know for the Bruce Wayne character's emotional damage and when we first meet the character we hear a lot from the cops who are like why the hell is this weirdo in our crime scene like and we you know we meet the James Gordon played by Jeffrey Wright who will become Commissioner Gordon perhaps in future installments of this version of the universe if in fact there are such um but he's early enough in his career that he's just a detective here and um you know, he's invited Batman in and everyone else is like, this is obviously ludicrous. Like, why is this brooding dude in a huge muscly suit, like helping us solve crimes? Like you're a lunatic. And the notion that one of our first visions of Batman is not like a cool set piece where his cape flutters in the breeze, but um, a scene where we're supposed to see it as deeply bizarre and a very strange emotional response to grief in the world is one of the things I really liked about the movie. Um, because, you know, rather than lionizing his brooding darkness, the film seems emotionally mature enough to recognize that as damage without romanticizing the damage. I mean, there's some romance, I suppose, in the glamour of the of the shots and the world building, but you know, the arc of the film is essentially he creates the Batman character because he's so broken. Um, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that the events of the film cause him to reflect upon those choices and mature and perhaps pursue a different approach. Uh, all of which do make the film feel refreshing or different or slightly less adolescent than some previous versions of it that I have seen. It is, however, still quite long. <laughs> I, I enjoyed those pieces of it, but I did check my watch quite regularly throughout because it's not the the zippiest version, even though uh, a number of the characters we encounter are pretty great. Um, Jamal, what did you think of the overall pacing and, and who were some of the standout other performances uh, in the film for you? You know, I didn't have much of a problem with the pacing because I thought that the basic conceit of this version, which the movie isn't really structured around big action set pieces, it's stru- it's like it, it's an investigation. It's sort of following the trail and following the clues. I think like sort of the like the noirs on which this is clearly drawing influence, the whole point is right to ask is to say, well, what did this all mean? What did what did this investigation, what did this journey into the darkness actually mean? And was there any point in it at all? And I, I found that myself uh, pretty compelling. As far as performances go, I mean, the two that stand out, I mean, well, first of all, we have not even mentioned her yet, but Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman, um, 
she is terrific. She is great. She's not doing the Michelle Pfeiffer thing. It's a very different kind of performance. She's not doing what Anne Hathaway did in the in the uh, in the Nolan Batman movies. But nonetheless, she she brings her own spin to the character. Um, sort of a uh, she, you know, she says I, I like to collect strays and that very much like captures her whole ethos sort of wanting to um, find a place in the world but also wanting to get what's hers um, I thought she was great I thought she had great chemistry with, with Pattinson and then also um, John Turturro uh, Jeffrey Wright as you, me- you mentioned as Commissioner Gordon I'm a huge Jeffrey Wright fan so I'm just sort of happy to see him whenever he's in something and I think thought he was great in this and then um, Colin Farrell as the Penguin, sort of a, a unrecognizable Colin Farrell, um, who's really, I think because he's under all these prosthetics, he can he can turn it to 5,000%, and it doesn't come off as being that high intensity. Uh, it fits the film, but it is kind of an extremely over-the-top performance, and I loved it. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Take it easy, sweetheart. You looking for me? I mean, truly unrecognizable. We always love to say an unrecognizable so-and-so, but I literally did not know that was Colin Farrell because I didn't watch any trailers and tried to not read anything about the movie. And I mean, we've just gotten to the point with prosthetics and and digital makeup, I guess, as well, where, you know, young, handsome actors can turn into jowly middle-aged guys and we don't know who they are. And it's it's a weird new (laughs) multiverse. There's been a bit of a like... um justice for character actors backlash to this performance of like where will the wonderful jowly performers of yesteryear find work if uh we have to like slather colin farrell in cheek fat in order to get our um cantankerous villains where do you guys stand are you pro or anti uh handsome men in jowl faux jowl <laughs> we've also had, we had jared leto uh, jowling and and bald painting it up uh in in house of gucci i, mean, I think this performance is so good that i can i, I can let this one pass but I, I do generally think that we should be getting you know bring on the bring on the real actual jowly people but then i mean the thing is is like who are those actors these days you know i mean this isn't this isn't an age of like charles lawton or like ned Beatty, right sort of who 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 would occupy that kind of role? And I can't really think of that person. I mean, I feel like we're going to just discourage the emergence of, of future Ned Beatty's if we continue to just slap rubber jowls on all our, our leading men. So it has to reach a little more critical mass before I'm going to be out picketing about it. But I think I stand <laughs> on the side of, of the character actors in this one. Can I say something about is the the the, part, the article in front of Batman from a specific series, comic book series? For a long time, the character was referred to as the Batman. Uh, that was sort of like that was what people called him. Um, it wasn't like a name that he bestowed upon himself necessarily. Just sort of like criminals, like oh, there's that, there's that guy, the Batman, right? <laughs> uh, and very early on, it wasn't a single. It wasn't like Batman is like a single word. It was the Bat space man and i kind of like my one complaint is that that's not what the movie was called like i would have preferred it to be called the bat space man which kind of (laughs) gets to the get evokes the very 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 early stuff Um, since we need to have every possible variation we'll get there the space will find its way into the next reboot i do think though it speaks to it's a smart choice for the moment that the film situates him because he isn't yet a legend or a character or like a, a capital B Batman. He's like a weirdo in a weird outfit doing weird things. And the world is like, what's your deal, dude? Um, so the notion of like, yeah, it's that bat guy 
Yeah, exactly. The, the feeling of the first scene is like there is a man dressed like a bat standing in this crime scene for some <laughs> Let's reason. Just deal with it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're very eager to hear what you, our listeners, thought of the Batman. I appreciate, a, if nothing else, a, a pretentious, definite article in a movie title. So uh, check it out in theaters and let us know what you thought. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. We have arrived at the moment in our show when we talk business. Dana, what have we got today? Julia, our only item of business today is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. When we were planning this episode this week, Jamel happened to tell us that lately he has been rewatching all of Scorsese. I think he's doing it chronologically. We'll talk to him about that and having lots of new thoughts about the work of Martin Scorsese. So we thought we would take advantage of Jamel's Scorsese jag to talk about that director, what he's enjoying or not enjoying, and our own responses to that very important filmmaker with so many movies under his belt. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that discussion at the end of the show as a bonus segment. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. As we've talked about before, members get ad-free podcasts. They get bonus segments like the one I just described, which many other podcasts have as well. And of course, they get unlimited access to all of the writing on slate.com. You will never hit a paywall if you belong to Slate Plus. And of course, you'll also be supporting us, our work, and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships matter a lot to Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Julia, back to the show. Next up is Drive My Car, the new three-hour film from director Ryusuke Hamaguchi that has been racking up critics' awards and is nominated for four Oscars. The film stars Hidetoshi Nishijima as Yusuke Kafuku, an actor and theater director, and the action centers on a workshop he's conducting in Hiroshima, a multilingual production of Uncle Vanya. While he's in residence, he is driven around the city by a young female driver played by Toko Miura, and his car becomes the scene of many long conversations about grief and about art. We're going to start by playing a clip. The clip is in Japanese. Uh, in it, we'll hear the driver played by Toko Miura beginning to open up for the first time to her passenger. <laughs> Dana, I'm going to start with you here. Um, This is a beautiful and quiet film that um, has made, some might say, a startlingly big impact in the uh, kind of American film awards cycle this year. Tell us what you thought of it and, and what you make of the waves it's making. I mean, I have a complex and layered history with this movie where I first saw it in 
the rush of award season movies and you know when the the week or two where critics have to just cram every possible movie into their brain so that they can vote on it in awards and make lists and things like that and I think that I didn't do justice to it the first time I saw it because I really, really didn't get it. I it, I had an experience of of watching it where I thought I admire what this movie's trying to do. I think it accomplishes what it's trying to do brilliantly well. It's original, you know. It's it's thoughtful, but I wasn't emotionally engaged with it at all. And as we'll talk about, it's a very emotional story. I mean, if you're not if you're not identified and engaging with the characters' intense but very uh, uh, discreetly expressed, stoically expressed emotions, then you're really not experiencing the movie. And I think that was how I saw it the first time. Um, now, the second time around, it's now streaming on HBO Max. So we'll talk about this in our long movie segment later. But I was able to experience it um, with a little bit less, uh, you know, but burning tedium in a, in a theater and it is slow. This is a three hour movie and it moves slowly. And uh, it's extraordinary to me that it's, it's achieved what it has in the, in the American kind of marketplace of movies this year, that it's, you know, kind of a hit for a foreign movie and is up for best picture Oscar and all kinds of other Oscars. It really speaks well to the American film going public that a movie that's this inaccessible in some ways has had the success and the warm reception uh, outside of Japan that it has. Um, second time through, admired its artfulness even more, was more emotionally engaged than the first time. I'm still not 100 percent. I, I am not I'm not fangirling over this movie in, in the way that many critics are and that I, I sort of wish that I could. And I think it may have to do with the way that it depicts making the making of art and the making of the play Uncle Vanya, which is, you know, the, the, the theater piece that he's been, the, the main character has been invited to Hiroshima to mount this production of. It's, I'm, I'm just not clear what the movie is trying to say about that production or about art making or theater in general, except that, you know, in many ways, the Uncle Vanya story is, is reflecting the character's life. That's something that's happening throughout the movie. And I think that the, I appreciate the way that the two stories are braided together, you know, the, the Chekhov play and his own traumatic backstory. Uh, his connection with the the driver, which is the emotional heart of the movie, really did strike me this time and actually win me over. Both actors are extraordinary. But I mean, maybe I'll throw it back to you guys. Like, what is this movie trying to say about art making other than, you know, we all need art to survive. We all need to make things in order to to move on with our lives. But the production of Uncle Vanya that he's putting on, is it is it good? Is it bad? Is it well or poorly acted? What What is it? There's just something very strange about his conception of theater. I almost wish that we had Isaac Butler, you know, Slate's resident theater writer, to talk about this movie because there were moments when they were doing the table read, for example. There's many, many scenes of him sitting around with this multilingual cast. He has speakers of Korean, uh, Mand uh, Mandarin Chinese, Japanese, and also one speaker of Korean Sign Language who are all actors in the play. They don't necessarily understand each other. And that's part of the point. But when things were happening with Uncle Vanya, I really didn't understand the blocking or what was being said about that production. And it seemed very important to understand that because it's a very large portion of the movie. Interesting. Okay, Jamal, what uh, what was your response to the film? So I loved the film. Um, I was captivated by it. I, uh, I said on Twitter after I finished it that I could have watched six hours of this movie. I thought that the um, the characters and the performances were so fully realized and so and so I just wanted to see how their lives continued on. 
Um, obviously, much of the movie deals with grief and with loss and with coming to terms with those things and with survivor's guilt, um, with coming to terms with that. I'm not super familiar with theater or with Chekhov or with Uncle Vanya, so I don't know if I necessarily even have like the capacity to do a sort of fine reading of that aspect of the film. But to me, at least, it seems, you know, the fact that it was a multilingual production, I'm including Tagalog, uh, language from the Philippines, um, you know, it's, it, seemed to, it seemed to me trying to be part of the whole motif of sort of like communication across great barriers and how does one communicate across great barriers Whether those barriers are like linguistic you know i literally cannot understand what you're saying or whether those barriers are emotional um uh, you know i can't there's you are hiding something or they are impenetrable in some way or you are shielding something and so that's that that is to me how that how that how this fits in to the um to the overall character study, it's sort of it's a dramatization of of those themes. Uh, but beyond that, I you know I, I I don't necessarily have a sophisticated analysis. I just know that I finished this film um, so satisfied with my viewing experience and so glad to have seen it. And so sort of thinking about how because to me the movie did not feel like three hours. Um, no. It felt it felt very fast. It felt very like quick even though it's not it's not a snappy movie right like it's not the camera is um very deliberate and observational like the editing is not like frantic or anything it's like a very leisurely paced movie but it does not feel like one so i've just been sort of thinking about how that like how that was done because that to me is a magic trick like how do you make a three-hour movie feel so comfy and so quick so so sort of easy to take in yeah i had a similar experience uh, in in feeling like the movie was weirdly light on its feet and fleet for being so long the movie has a very very quiet sense of humor about itself it is just absolutely hilarious when <laughs> 40 minutes into the movie after like a whole soap opera's worth of plot lines the credits roll <laughs> It's just like fantastic. Um, and you kind of get a sense that the movie is establishing its own reality for you. And it's like, this is the pace upon which everything is happening. Like, you know, the, the movie is about grief without without spoiling too much about the first 40 minutes. Um, but But a lot of what happens in the first 40 minutes of the movie could just be backstory that is alluded to, right? Like a, a more conventional structure for a grief movie would be like, okay, all that happened off screen and we're picking up two years later and um, where do we find our, our tragic hero? I mean, that's essentially what the Batman did and it, it, it still found a way to use those 40 minutes, right? Um, and I found the performance pieces moving. Uh, I didn't find them boring. I did have a similar yearning to understand what, you know, a, a Chekhov scholar would make of them or what kind of finer points about that play or about performances of that play this film might be making but the notion that I mean acting is just an absolutely mysterious art and profession right like what a strange thing to do to try to pretend to be other people in order to elicit emotional responses in other other people uh it's it's a weird art um and 
you know, our hero's unusual method of both direction and, you know, guiding actors. I'm not sure (laughs) the film is arguing that that's the only way to make art, but that I, I, what I took away was that there was sort of a frustration in what words can and cannot say, like the decision to say something or the decision to not say something, um, isn't actually where the communication lies. The the fundamental emotional connection between people is is just underneath language. And so, how do you get to that when the structure of a of a play is to use language? Um, so the the sense of kind of human connection beyond the specifics of language and meaning felt like the point, and it worked for me. And then also just the 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 characterization of those that troop of actors and their camaraderie and their exasperation with, with their, their very weird director. Um, you know, there were lots of little moments of kind of tension and delight and story in all of the 180 minutes of this movie, you know, arguably I would say more happens in this three hours of people driving around than in the three hours of the Batman, even though that's full of like a mystery and motorcycle chases and, you know, uh, beautiful shots of uh, flaming explosions and capes set beautifully against them. Like somehow this movie was filled with more quiet incident that, that engrossed me. I mean, it's strange because I have no, there's nothing I would change about this movie. I think it's, it's it deliberately sets out to do all of the things that you're talking about. It accomplishes them exquisitely. It has that contemplative pacing. There was just something about it, even the second time through where I was more engaged, that, that seemed very cerebral. And that's not necessarily a knock against a movie, but when it is a movie about, you know, grief and bonding and, and two people establishing a connection in this very lonely time in their lives... I, something about the the cerebral nature, in particular of the theater stuff. It's not that it rubbed me the wrong way. I just I just literally did, have not found my way into it yet. <laughs> I sort of do want to see this with someone who either knows Uncle Vanya really well or just is an actor or a director and works in theater because there seemed to be so little going on direction wise in those scenes where he was having table reads with his actors. For example. For long periods, he doesn't let them move around. That's part of his kind of directorial style, I guess. And the actors are frustrated because they're still sitting around just reading the text. And there's some interesting things that he says to some of the actors about letting the text guide you and how if you ask the text questions, it will lead you somewhere. And that all seemed really interesting, but it remained on the plane of just analysis for me because I didn't see how that was happening in the theatrical piece itself. And I suppose that you could just disregard that and not understand it and still enjoy the movie for everything else that it has to offer. But to me, that remained a sort of impenetrable mystery. So I didn't quite feel the satisfaction that Jamel did at the end. Uh, in terms of the central character relationship, yes, the the final sort of emotional climax is, is really successful. But the, the 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 scene, the final scene of the movie, or or second to last scene, I guess, is of a performance of Uncle Vanya, and I just didn't understand what what road had been traveled to get there and what the place of arrival meant. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I could totally understand having that reaction to it. Dana, what do you make of this film's um, award season success and the fact that it's up for so many Oscars? Uh, I believe your critic's body awarded it Best Picture. Uh, and you're probably verboten from telling us about the, you know, knockdown drag out fights that resulted in that uh, outcome. But, you know, wh- why do you think this is having such a big impact here? Yeah, I mean, I, 
That it won the New York Film Critics Circle Best Picture seems less surprising to me than that it's in conversation for the Oscar. That is genuinely surprising and, and heartwarming. I mean, this doesn't have to be, you know, my favorite movie of the the year for me to say, wow, what a great thing for the for the movie ecosystem that people are recognizing it and that it's getting seen even by Oscar voters. You know, I think it, it stands little chance of winning a Best Picture Oscar. I mean, if only just because it's a foreign film, but I think also because of its length and relative inaccessibility, etc. But that doesn't bother me at all. I don't I don't feel like, you know, I need to be on a hill waving a flag for drive my car because its quality speaks for itself, you know, and the fact that it's traveled as well as it has is is quite surprising and wonderful. We haven't mentioned that this is this is an adaptation. It's based on some short stories by Haruki Murakami, who is a Japanese author who has also done really well outside of Japan and, you know, is is a big favorite of a lot of Western readers. And a lot of people have said, I don't know Murakami super well. I've read a couple of his novels, have not read any of the stories that this this film is based on. But people are, are saying that it's a, it's a great adaptation, that it captures the mood of a Murakami story better than, than any adaptation of his work has so far. And, you know, whatever it is, that, that sense of kind of loneliness and, and urban alienation and, you know, self-discovery that is a very sort of Murakami theme, I think this this movie realizes beautifully. And the fact that filmgoers as a whole are caring about that and are voting with their feet and wanting to, to see this movie or I guess now stream it uh, seems seems like a wonderful sign. All right. Well, the film is Drive My Car. Uh, you can now see it streaming on HBO Max. Let us know what you thought. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Our final segment today is the long runtime. Uh, the Batman clocked in at... Two hours and 56 minutes. Drive My Car clocked in at two hours and 59 minutes. Uh, we've also had a number of longish plus two hour films recently in Dune, in Spider Man No Way Home. Uh, it's become increasingly common, particularly for some of these big action films, but, but you know, also in other genres. For movies to just really push well past that, you know, 90 minutes is normal and two hours is long ethos. Uh, it feels like now two hours is normal and three hours is long. So I'm curious to know how you guys feel about long films. Are you like, hooray, more movie for me? Or are you like, boo, get your shears out. Why'd you, why are you being so indulgent? Uh, or do you have some other response that is not handily encapsulated by those two summations from me? Um, Jamel, let's start with you. What's your, what's your relationship to, uh, a film that takes its sweet time. Sure. So I sort of have this belief that movies should either be 90 minutes or three hours. <laughs> I, the, the two hour, the two and a half hour movie, those are the ones that I often feel have a lot of fat to trim. Um, I, I feel like I've not seen a two and a half hour movie that couldn't be two hours, and I've not seen a two hour movie that couldn't be 90 minutes. Um but I think a three-hour movie often is three hours for a reason, and maybe this is a bit of selection bias, like what I'm watching that's at this length. But in my experience, at least, movies at that length 
actually do have a reason to be that long. They are doing something particular with the runtime, and this I have no problem with it. One of my favorite watches this year um, is uh, The Leopard, you know, the 1963 Italian film starring Burt Lancaster, which is about a little over three hours. And I think every single moment of that movie is essential. Um, I think you need that length to really kind of get into the world of the film. A personal favorite of mine, um, Melville's Army of Shadows, I think inches up towards three hours. And likewise, I think uses every bit of the time that it has. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm often quite fine with them and because I'm comfortable watching a movie over a day or two, you know, you know, splitting it an hour and a half, one day, an hour and a half the next, it doesn't really bother me to have that kind of length. Um, even if I'm watching it all the way through in a theater, it doesn't really bother me, but I feel, especially when it comes to action films, like mainstream action films, which are often, you know, going over two hours, I, I often find that those are the ones that feel just interminably long. And did the Batman feel long to you? No, the Batman did not feel long to me. Um, I thought that it's it's pacing and it's sort of being structured around a detective story, like, kept my attention. Um, and it was just interesting to look at the entire time as well. I often, I think sort of that's, that's part of this, right? That um, when a movie isn't interesting to look at, uh, it makes the length feel all that much worse. And I think a lot of movies these days are not very interesting to look at. Yeah, I, I, um, I will confess that to me, the Batman just kept going. I did find myself checking my watch a lot. There's a moment where there's a fraught confrontation with Torturo's gangster character. And then I was like, oh, wait, but he's not the Riddler. We still have to get to the Riddler. Damn it. <laughs> like, like, you know, you, you, the, the kind of concatenation of confrontations and set pieces that now seems required for a major blockbuster um, does feel like... I don't know, there's an arms race where they feel like they haven't given you your money's worth if there aren't like five big set pieces, no, six big set pieces um, that that I think can be a bit exhausting. But I agree with you that the just sheer kind of beauty and interest of a lot of those scenes and then the deepening characterization of the Batman character and in Pattinson's performance did did carry me through, even if I got a little itchy. Um but Dana, you, you know, you've really got to pack these films in in your role as a film critic. So to what degree are you clocking runtimes and what's your relationship to them? I mean, I think it's kind of a universal joke among movie critics that, you know, a, a long movie is a bad movie, even if we don't really believe that. And, you know, I feel like it's a standard joke when some new new big pop blockbuster comes out that, you know, when the running time is revealed, people are moaning and groaning that it's especially right around two hours and 40 minutes. For some reason, Jamel, I agree, that's a deadly running time, in particular for a big pop blockbuster. I mean, it's very different when it's an art film, like you're talking about Visconti's The Leopard. I was thinking about Bellatar's Satan Tango, which is famously seven and a half hours long and is usually shown in several parts so it's, it's a little bit more like a series but you know is an absolutely brilliant masterpiece that I loved watching in the theater and it's unbelievably long um, but when you get into the realm of the pop blockbuster there's a whole different feeling to, to the length and I think Julia it has to do with what you're saying about you know things just being being padded out to make you feel like you're getting your money's worth or so that they're flaunting their own budget on the screen and 
it's really it, there has been a real creep i feel like in in terms of blockbuster lengths like if you think about last year the bond movie is 2 hours and 40 minutes that deadly runtime so is the eternals roughly so is dune roughly you know it's that thing where it's not quite two movies which would be 3 hours two back to back 90 minute movies it just feels more like one extremely long movie for some reason and uh when things hit that zone yeah, I'm definitely checking my watch. The Batman was much, much better than I thought it would be, and I gave it a very positive review, but it was at least 20 minutes too long. I mean, as I was walking out of it with my editor who saw it with me, we were talking about the the endings. There are at least four discrete endings to the Batman. We won't spoil what they are in this, this segment, but there were just moments that we, we thought the credits would start rolling or, or something that felt like a stinger, but it was instead stuck into the end of the movie and it just kept unfurling and unfurling with action scene after action scene. Honestly, Drive My Car felt a bit long to me too, but as I said in that segment, there's nothing I would take out of it. You know, each individual scene was beautifully realized and I see why they all flowed together in the way that they did. But it, it was long. It was long and it moved slowly. And there were a lot of long shots of a red Saab driving on highways in Japan that were a lot like the previous shots of, of a Saab on highways in Japan. Uh, and I definitely felt that. Um, but I don't think long equals equals bad, especially when I, again, when it comes to a movie that's as artful as Drive My Car. It's trying to do something with that duration. It is a movie about duration in some ways and uh, and about the experience of sitting quietly in a car with someone and all the things that are happening under the surface of that moment. So it's not as if trimming those scenes would have gotten the movie's message across more clearly. Do you guys feel like your relationship to TV has changed your relationship to film lengths? Like, I'm struck in my own sort of, you know, personal recreational watching. Like when I'm not watching something for my LA Times work or for this podcast, I want to see TV. And I follow you on Twitter, Jamel, and it seems like your rest and relaxation habits are very filmic and you're inclined to pop in a movie for kicks. I like, I almost never want to pop in a movie for kicks because it feels like such a commitment, even the 90-minute ones, even though I will pop in one episode of Veronica Mars and then watch two more and quickly have spent just as many minutes with my eyes looking at a screen. But somehow the episodic nature of television makes it feel like you get to choose, you get to opt in, you have all these key moments and um, just feeling sort of trapped in a film has has been a, has dissuaded me from that kind of non-work watching. Um, and I've only just recently begun to do what you described, which is just watch the first hour of a movie one night and then pick it up the, the other night. I did that with Nightmare Alley, actually, for this show. I worked fine. Um, so, you know, maybe it's just I need to train myself to break up my viewing habits. But but do you guys think TV has broken your film attention span, made you appreciate the sustained viewing experience of film, not related to it at all? Curious to hear what you guys think. It's been something of the re reverse for me. I can't commit. I can't watch TV because TV seems like a big commitment to me. If I put <laughs> on an episode of something, then okay, I'm obligated now to at least like complete this season. And I just don't. I don't want to make that. I don't want to commit to things like that. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily know I'm going to finish something, but I and I like to finish things. Whereas movies, that's a discrete, a set discrete amount of time. And then once I'm done with it it's done. The movie is over. Um, and there's no more to really follow up on. And I should have preferred that. 
Um, so for me, my preference for watching movies over watching TV um, is very much about being able to commit to something in the aggregate much shorter um, than a whole TV show. Which makes total sense. Like my, your logic is more sensible than my logic. Like the number <laughs> of hours I've watched now, like listening to Veronica Mars, I can't, you know, both, both of these uh, films are a snap compared to how much time I've now spent in the noir universe of Neptune, California. So I, I, it, it is like a psychological trick that is wrong, and yet it is my emotional response to things. How about you, Dana? I'm 100% like Jamel, much more a movie person than a TV person. I've talked about this on the show a lot. I feel like TV seems so endlessly padded to me. It's so rare that we talk about a series on this show or that I watch a series not for this show where I don't feel like it could have been shortened. You know, like this meeting could have been an email very much applies to, to TV in that way. Like this could have been a movie or it could have been a much shorter season of TV. That's especially true of um, of documentary series. You know, that it seems like there's this new thing now that there has to be like a 10 episode documentary about some, I don't know, some true crime or something. And it really could have been covered in such a more concise and satisfying way. I don't like the feeling of abandoning a show, just like it's not fun to put down a book that you're not enjoying and just feel like, well, that book is just forever hanging there. But I'm certainly not going to put in the, you know, 10 hours that it would take to finish that book or finish that series if I'm not enjoying it. So yeah, I mean, this is what I call in relation to movies, the kind of wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, kind of advantage, you know, like good or bad, the movie will be over, you will have experienced it in its entirety. And you can think about it and move on with your life. Yeah, it's a persuasive argument. I don't know why it is not (laughs) like I can't, can't make my my watching feelings comport with reality in that way. I guess maybe it's the the counterpart is that if I'm going to invest, I, you know what? I've always loved novels, but not short stories. Like I've always felt irritated with short stories. Like if you've gone to the trouble of setting up this world and characters I care about, then I want a whole novel out of it. Like give me the whole story. And one of the perverse reactions I had to the Batman is I found the whole thing too slow, too deliberate. Like it just took too much time to set all this up. And yet I really liked the version of Gotham and the Batman that it created. And I like want there to be now another movie with this character and with this director and with this iteration because, because the world it built was fascinating. You know, the, the, the notion that the brooding is not Batman's strength, but his problem um, and that he, he, you know, it's, it's actually a similar message to the Lego Batman message of like, you have to learn to trust your friends. <laughs> like, I don't know the notion of all of that glowering storytelling bravado, um, paired with a really humanistic message is interesting. I'd like to go back to that. And I think I would care more about the world and, and it might feel like it moves faster. So Maybe maybe my response comes that if I'm going to invest at all in your universe and your characters, I want I want to really sink in and and get in there. Um, and 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 the reason movies feel long to me is actually because they feel too short in some way. All right. Well, let's uh, give a twist ending here by making our long runtime segment the shortest uh, that we've recorded thus far today. Uh, listeners, please write us at culturefest at slate.com. Let us know what you think when you encounter a nearly three hour runtime. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next up, I think we will endorse Dana. Do you have something for us? Well, Julia, before I get into my endorsement proper, I'm going to do a tiny bit of self-promo. I hope listeners will forgive me for this, but uh, my book, Cameraman, is going to be the subject of a segment on CBS Sunday Morning this weekend. And uh, I'm really excited and nervous about that, getting in front of a TV camera. Even though I spend my life behind a podcast microphone, getting in front of a TV camera is a different feeling. Uh, But I'm very flattered that CBS Sunday Morning wants to do a segment on Buster Keaton, pegged to my book, Cameraman. So if you want to see that segment, and I think they're also going to interview Bill Earl. Irwin, the wonderful actor and clown who's a huge Keaton fan and sort of a keeper of his legacy. You can tune in to CBS Sunday Morning this coming Sunday. But moving on to my real endorsement this week, I have one, Julia, that I think is going to do you proud as a magazine editor and a lover of the printed word. So I'm going to endorse a a kind of thing I think I've never endorsed before, which is a specific issue of a specific magazine. This is the new issue of W that has on the cover a picture of Penelope Cruz in a bright pink unitard and a flower (laughs) on her head. And it says, the director's issue... Penelope Cruz by Pedro Almodovar. So one of the things that W does is, you know, it'll take one celebrity and have them interview and or write on another celebrity. Obviously, Almodovar and Penelope Cruz are old colleagues, have been working together for decades and have made wonderful movies together. They just made Parallel Mothers, which we talked about on this show and loved. And so I just wanted to hear what Almodovar had to say about Penelope Cruz. And as it turns out, he not only interviews her, but he photographs her. And uh, and so there's this wonderful spread of him, you know, outfitting her in incredible Almodovar colors and putting her against incredible backgrounds and taking these photographs of her. So just on the level of a fashion mag, it's extremely successful. But also, of course, what he has to say about her is very nuanced, very affectionate and loving. And uh, it was just so worthwhile. And it reminded me of how great magazines can be, you know, physical, big, glossy magazines, which I generally, I, I subscribe to a couple, but it's more for the articles. I don't often just sit around anymore and page through a fashion magazine and kind of salivate over the beauty of the images. And I did that with this W Magazine, which also has 
not quite as visually sumptuous, but really interesting. It's got a piece by Paul Thomas Anderson on Alana Haim, who obviously is the star of his most recent movie. So if you want to see some great directors photographing their leading ladies and talking about working with them, get the new issue of W, the director's issue. Wow, I love it. An, an actual issue of a magazine rising to the level of endorsability. Very cool. Uh, Jamel, what are you recommending this week? So I recently picked up the uh, 4K UHD version of a movie called Hard Target. Uh, it is a 1993 action film directed by the famed Hong Kong director John Woo. It's actually his U.S. debut. I think it's the first Hollywood movie directed by an Asian filmmaker, um, and which is sort of funny given what the movie is. Uh, it is a Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle that takes place in New Orleans, an adaptation <laughs> of The Most Dangerous Game. It's a very silly movie, um, very over the top, although it has some interesting sort of like class critique. That's It's mostly just an opportunity for watching Van Damme, you know, do splits and kick people in the face. Um, and it totally delivers. Uh, but I this is my, my pick because this is... M- Weirdly, one of the best restorations of a movie I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> the distributor or wh- whoever did the restoration uh, got their hands on the original negative um, of the film. So it's a direct 4K transfer and restoration from the negative, And it looks incredible. It's sort of it's gonna be one of my um, blu-rays that I use when I want to like explain what makes this worth investing in, what makes, you know, 4K disc and a 4K Blu-ray player worth owning because um, it just looks incredible. And it looks so good that when I was watching it, and this is a movie that I've seen a dozen times, it was almost like watching a new movie. Um, it was really that striking of a difference from previous transfers. So, you know, recommending Hard Target as a film if you've never seen it. But if you if you buy physical media and if you specifically have a 4K Blu-ray player, I kind of recommend getting this disc because it really is a, a great showcase disc for uh, the technology. Wow. All right. That sounds interesting on many levels. Um, my endorsement this week is actually going to be a re-endorsement, but it was too apropos to skip. Um, A few years ago, I endorsed the Batman 66 comics, which is a DC series published in the mid-teens that is very clearly and deliberately and brilliantly set within the world of the 1966 Batman TV shows, which have an extremely different tone from any of the filmic adaptations we've had since the 1990s. Um, Much more colorful much more kid-friendly, much more just ironical, like kind of recognizes the idea that the the whole world and the whole concept is a little bit ridiculous uh, and then places a very sincere, verging on pompous, but stopping just short of it, um, competent Batman at the center of this technicolor city of um, villainous lunatics who never get too far with their schemes. Um, one reason I loved it is because it was very, very fun to read with my children as they were learning about this universe. And Tom Skoko wrote a wonderful lament uh, online a couple years ago about the fact that comic book movies are not actually appropriate for children. I would not take my nine-year-old boys to see The Batman. I'm sure there are a bunch of nine-year-old boys who have seen The Batman, but mine are still a little tender around um, such violence and gloom. Uh, so if you would like comics that are appropriate for kids but enjoyable for adults, 
strong, strong, strong recommend for the Batman 66 series. I wish they were still publishing more of them. They are super, super fun. So if your kids are yearning for Batman and you think, no way in hell am I going to let them see this dark opus, buy them these instead or take them out from the library and, uh, and you will enjoy a very different dip into the Batverse. Can I add to that recommendation on, on a very similar note for sure. kids who want to watch something? Um, there is a series that aired around the same time that these comics ran called Batman, the brave and the bold. Um, you, it's on HBO max now cause it was run through Cartoon Network, which is part of WB or whatever. Um, but it's, it's a very 1960s style Batman depiction, big, bright, colorful colors, really kid friendly, very funny. Um, I've watched it with my toddler a few times and it's like a really, really well done show. Um, and totally will scratch that itch as well. So. That is such a good wreck. I think we watched a few of those, but I forget if if my kids went through and, and did the whole thing. So I will I will have to go excavate that this weekend. Jamel, thank you so much for coming and sitting in for Steve. It's such a treat to have you on for the whole show. It's always my pleasure. And Dana, thank you as always. Yes, it was fun. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or follow us on Twitter at slatecultfest. Our intro music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Jamal Bowie, I'm Julia Turner. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.